Chronicles chapter 1, Solomon's prayer. What does Solomon pray for? Wisdom and knowledge. How to lead God's people. So I want to tell you one of the wisest things I think I've ever heard done um, was something that was done on this day a couple years ago. Our brother Levi Gray chose to marry Shekinah on his birthday. And today is his birthday and his anniversary. Did you throw me off? Okay, I was going to say, I saw him do that, and I was like, he'll never forget his anniversary. Okay, either way, his birthday weekend. So we honor you, brother, for, for that wise and knowledgeable decision. Uh, we do celebrate uh, life in this church. We celebrate uh, children. We celebrate uh, weddings. We celebrate anniversaries. We also mourn um, the taking of lives and death and and, and all the things that go with, uh, with that. But we do want to stop and just say, we honor you, brother, on your birthday and your anniversary, you and Shekinah. Uh, we love you guys. Um, so I'm going to start with a question as we begin the sermon. <clears throat> Aside from yourself, okay, who's the worst person you know? Because <laughs> Paul says he's the chief of all sinners, and that should be the attitude that we take. But ask you the question, who is the worst person you know? And let me elaborate on that question. Who's the person, whether you know them uh, personally or you know of them, who is a person that you just feel like is so far from God? Who's that person that comes, keep it to yourself because I don't want everybody airing out their laundry over live stream. Um, but who's that person that you know in your life, that man just, despises uh, the Lord, goes against his ways, um, is an enemy of God in so many ways. Just keep that person in your mind. Hold that person in your mind for a second. And now I want to ask you a follow-up question. Is this person too far from the mighty hand and the gracious love of the Lord Jesus Christ? No. No. Person is not. I've shared it from this pulpit many times, but in 2010, when the Lord saved me, I actually had a friend that I went to high school with. I was saved at the age of 32, and he said, Hey, Brian, he, and he, he meant this in full sincerity. He said, You were the last person that I ever thought would get saved. And so in today's passage, we're going to hear the story of a man who was far from God, he was far from his community. He was estranged, he was separated, he was banished even. He was naked, he cut himself, he had sores, he smelt bad, he looked bad, he was bad to be around. And yet, the loving kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ met him where he was at and changed him, transformed him. And so when you hold that person in your mind through this sermon, I want you to, to think about them. And I want you to be actively praying. Don't give up on praying for these people. No one is too far from God. Amen. God can save anyone. Matter of fact, God sometimes is in the business of saving those who are farthest from him because it brings them the most glory. So if you want to write that down, whatever, whatever you need to be reminded to pray for that person, do it. 
God's grace is sufficient for even the worst of all sinners. And so, <clears throat> Luke chapter 8, we're going to stand and read together. Uh, Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. The words will be on the screen. And uh, we'll read aloud together. If you're a first-time visitor, welcome to the church. Um, we do read together here. We believe the Word of God is uh, sufficient to teach us and all the things that we need. And even a story that existed over 2,000 years ago, still, uh, it's still a good story for us. And it's not only just a, a myth or some sort of legend, but it is actually the true inspired events of the Lord Jesus Christ as he walked this earth and was inspired. Uh, he inspired the apostles to write these things down and preserve them for us throughout the ages so that we might benefit from them today. Amen. So we're going to read together, starting off in verse 26 in Luke chapter 8. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God, I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let him enter them. So they gave him permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled, told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came out to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone. <clears throat> but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of our Lord. Lord, we pray now and we ask that you would, through your spirit, empower the listening and the preaching of your word that we might live out the principles in the text to honor you, God, who has saved us, sealed us, set us apart, that we might be useful vessels for your glory to help build your kingdom here in Charlotte to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys may be seated. If I could ask someone to bring me another bottle of water, please. <coughs> All right, so thank you, brother. So what we're going to do is we're just going to walk through verse by verse and just kind of explain it and then expound upon the principles that God can transform even the most tormented. 
that God can save those who seem to be too far gone. So starting off in verse 26, it says, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. Does anyone remember what happened last, in last week's text? Anyone give a short summary? Jesus calmed the storm. Great summary. So after uh, Jesus had been with his disciples, he, they get in the boat together and they start crossing the sea. And we see that this miraculous storm comes out of nowhere. And the disciples are fearful because the water's crashing the sides of the boat. The boat starts flooding with water. They start freaking out, as would we all. And they turn to Jesus and look at him and he's sleeping. He's resting. And they say, Master, Master, save us. Jesus stands up, speaks the word, and the storm was calm. And so it probably would have been one of the most terrifying, uh, most anxious moments in their life. So getting to the shore would have been a, a hopeful respite of uh, drama. But uh, such is the life of Jesus that uh, wherever Jesus is working, uh, drama ensues. And so um, they get to the shore and verse 27 says, When Jesus stepped out on the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. This man was naked. This man was tormented. This man, it says for a long time he had worn no clothes. So he wasn't just naked for a day, but he had spent a long period of time without clothes on. One of the basic necessities of life we even see um, in the garden that, that clothes began to cover sin. Uh, clothes began because of the effects of sin. And here this man was naked, completely naked, uh, but not in a good way. He was naked because he was tormented by demons. And it says that he was originally from the city, but now he lived not in a house, but among the tombs. And when we think of tombs, what do we think of? Huh? Graves, right? For dead people are buried in a tomb. But tombs in this context would have been caves, okay? Um, and the text doesn't explicitly say this in this gospel or the other synoptic gospels, but it could have been like, anybody ever been to the beach, especially California, you see caves all alongside the shore. Um, you see caves built into the side where the, where the water breaks in. Could have been one of those. I kind of think it was because he, maybe he was in the cave and he saw Jesus coming. He saw him you know, display his power and calm the storm. And uh, this man was waiting on Jesus. And verse 28 says, When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. Now, I think what's interesting here, the irony of this passage, um, the last time we hear someone questioning the identity of Jesus, it was the disciples, okay? After Jesus calmed the storm and brought peace to the chaos, this is what the disciples said. What matter of man is this, that even the wind and the waves obey him? They questioned who he was. And here we see the man who was filled with demons. There was no question of who he was. Those demons knew exactly who he was. And they identified him. Jesus, 
Son of the Most High God, what have you to do with me? I beg you, do not torment me. Throughout Jesus' ministry, we see many encounters of demons being drawn and compelled to him. It, it seems to be the opposite, right? If you're a demon and Jesus comes, I'm running the other way. But these demons came to Jesus. Mark chapter 1, verse 23 and 24 says, And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. In Luke chapter 4, verse 41, it says this, And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. These demons knew who he was. They recognized Jesus as God with absolute authority over them. Again, we think Jesus would, would, uh, would repel them, but instead he attracts them. Mark chapter 5, verse 6, we see demon, de, uh, demons, almost said Jesus, demons falling at the feet of Jesus. Um, Jesus, uh, we'll, get, we'll get to verse 31 in a minute. Uh, the, the, the demon says, do not torment us. I'm going to address that in a minute. So I'm going to move on to verse 29. It says, for he had commanded the unclean spirit. So after this demon comes to Jesus, this man filled with these demons comes to Jesus says this, for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. In parentheses, for many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Mark chapter 5, verses 3 through 5 says this of the same story. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with the chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So, <clears throat> wherever Jesus was, all hell usually broke loose. And such is the, the, the building of the kingdom of God. And so we don't live in a time where we see this as a regular occurrence. We see it as a regular occurrence in Scripture because Jesus Christ was coming to basically put a death blow to Satan when he would go to the cross. And so the demonic realm was full of activity. And there's so many stories recorded and so many stories not recorded in Scripture that allude to the fact that everywhere Jesus was, there was some sort of evil spiritual element encroaching in on him and his disciples. And so when we think about today's modern context, there's two ditches that people fall in. Uh, the one ditch is that there's no sort of spiritual warfare and that everything's pretty much natural and everything's, you know, cerebral and we can understand God's word and we, we, we walk it out and there's, there's really no sort of evil spirits that are still at work today. That's one ditch. And then the second ditch is to to attribute everything to some sort of demon. You know, someone falls asleep at church. So he's got a sleep demon on him. Your, your wife was late uh, getting ready for church. That doesn't happen in my house, but maybe in yours it does. She's got the late demon on her. Um, you, you, you snoozed, right? You, you've got the, the lazy demon on you. Like we attribute everything to, to the demonic activity. And so, so the one ditch is you don't, there's nothing that's evil. There's nothing demonic. 
And the other one is like everything. And what, what, what this ditch does, it says, hey, there's nothing really spiritual. There's no spiritual warfare alive in this world today. And if you're in that ditch, it's probably because you're not doing anything meaningful for Jesus, that you don't really experience any sort of demonic activity. And if you're in this ditch, you're probably not taking um, accountability for your own actions, right? I, I hit the snooze button. It wasn't the sleep demon. I just went to bed too late or, or I'm, I'm working too hard. I need to take some rest, right? Everything can't be attributed to something outside of you. Like we have to take responsibility for ourselves. But I think when you look at scripture, there is, a, there is an, a middle road, which is the truth. And the truth is that there is a demonic realm that exists, especially in the life of believers who are activated for the kingdom of God. And you guys know I work in a ministry called Love Life. Some of you don't know this, but Love Life, we, we go to abortion centers and we call out to moms and dads and say, there is hope for you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have hope for you and for your child, and our church wants to help you. And I can tell you, I don't know what, what the gates of hell look like in other uh, eras, but I tell you the abortion center is one of the darkest places you can go. And you experience a lot of uh, spiritual and demonic activity, and it's undeniable. I've got some of my most ultra-reformed friends that are the, the most cessation of the cessationists, and say, they affirm there is a demonic realm and it exists because you experience the presence of evil, and then you experience the power of God to overcome the evil. And so I think we need to live with the tension that not everything is demonic, but we also need to live with the tension that if, if, if we don't experience it at all, it's probably because we're not really doing much for the kingdom of God. Amen? So some people will try to attribute this, this, uh, this demoniac man as someone who had dementia, someone who had mental issues, someone who had lunacy, uh, someone who was out of their mind. Um, and I will tell you that um, I'm not a doctor, but, but I've seen it personally, and you guys know my story of my mom. Like, there is a natural degradation of the mind that comes at an old age, sometimes uh, through um, genetics and sometimes through unhealthy living habits. And there's a lot of science and research being done now to what causes uh, dementia. Some people say sleep apnea. Some people say it's GMOs, unnatural foods, whatever, unhealthy patterns. Um, there, is a, there is a thing that can happen to you. Um, and so um, I want to acknowledge that as a real thing. But the scripture right here doesn't seem to make that distinction. And all throughout the New Testament, you'll see examples of people who are both losing their mind. And you also see examples of people who are possessed by demons. So sometimes, you know, especially in the Enlightenment age, uh, about two centuries ago, what a lot of people tried to do is they tried to reason from scriptures and say, it's not reasonable for these sort of spiritual things to happen. So we're going to remove the spiritual from that. And we're going to try to explain everything away naturally. You know, did Jesus walk on water? Maybe he was walking on a sandbar. You know, um, was this man possessed by demons? No, maybe he just had dementia. And we see here, especially when you read uh, Mark chapter 5, that this man was not only out of his mind, but this man had a supernatural strength, right? Mark chapter 5 says this man was able to break the shackles and chains that people put him in. They could not contain him with the strongest of binding. That, that's, that's beyond just, hey, I'm losing my mind. There's something different about this man. So I do want to make the distinction that there are both um, supernatural elements of the demonic, but there are also natural elements of just 
Uh, people can be uh, lunatics, so to speak. So Jesus asked him this question in verse 30. What is your name? And not the men, but the demons said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. Now, legion is not a word we use very often, unless we're probably referring to this story. But in the Roman Empire, the word legion meant about five to 6,000 in a battalion. Um, I don't know necessarily, the text isn't explicit that five to 6,000 demons entered this man, but the text is explicit that there was a multitude. It wasn't just a handful. There was a lot of demons who entered this man. And I think even the, the, when we think about legions and a battalion, what do battalions do? They go to battle. This legion was battling against this man. This legion was battling against his mind, his body, and his soul. And the legion was winning. He was cutting himself. He'd been estranged from his community. He wasn't even wearing clothes anymore. Probably wasn't eating well. He was, he was not in his right mind. The legion had waged war against this man. Verse 31 says, The legion begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. In Matthew's gospel, he says, Have you come here to torment us before the time? So these uh, demonic, these demons, the scripture seems to indicate that they have committed particularly erroneous sins and were to be locked into the abyss. They knew where they were going. Revelation 9, 1 through 3 and 11 says, these demons are to be released during the tribulation to torment people. And so they knew there was, they, they knew they had uh, a different sort of destination. 2 Peter 2, 4 says, God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. Likely this would have been the one-third of the heavenly host that, um, that rebelled against God in heaven. God cast them out of heaven. They became part of Satan's army. And they had spent their time, and they're spending their time um, tormenting people. Agents of evil, if you will. Verse 32 says, Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Now, some people would be like, why is Jesus negotiating with demons? And I don't think he was. Rather, he was showing the first point that these, these demons had an appointed time and an appointed purpose in the tribulation. And these, team, these demons had an appointed time for internal torment of their own being in the lake of fire. And so Jesus, um, in verse 32, says, then the demons came out of the man and into the pigs and into the herd and rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. And so these demons could have been released from this man. Likely, where would they have gone? Yeah, back into the town to torment more people. And so before I get PETA uh, picketing our church next week, because we don't love pigs. Listen, I love bacon. So I love pigs. You too? Anybody else? All right, a couple, couple of bacon lovers in here. But listen, let me, let me tell you what is it's really cool about this passage. Jesus shows mercy on the townspeople who we just read will tell him to leave by not sending the demons into the town to torment them. 
He sends them into the pigs, and the pigs rush in the water and drown. And so why, why would Jesus do this? Does he hate pigs? Does Jesus hate pigs? A lot of people accuse Jesus of, of not being an animal lover. Anybody here have a dog or a cat? Okay, three people. You got one? Okay, a couple of you. All right, raise your hand if you have a cat. Raise your hand if you have a dog. Okay. Does anyone have a cat and a dog? You have both. It's Allison, right? Yeah, Allison has a cat and a dog. Do they get along? Awesome. Um, listen, we live in a society that um, in a lot of places, they value animals over people. Um, there's bars you can go to and breweries you can go to and restaurants you can go to in Charlotte that uh, you're allowed to bring your dogs. And there's also some of those same breweries or restaurants, uh, maybe not the exact same, but there's some that say it's, there's, it's a new thing they're doing. They're called kidless restaurants. It's to make sure that when you go out in public, there's, there'll be no children there. And you, Caitlin's looking at me like, really? But you know, it's, it's no different than an all-inclusive resort that is adults only. Now listen, I'll be honest with you. If I'm going to go to a resort with my wife on a vacation, I probably want, want that as well. But I'm just telling you that we live in a society that will esteem and value animals over people. And there's no greater example of this than in 1973. I've talked about this before, too. Um, in 1973, there was an act. I think it was the EPA. It could have been another agency. It escapes my mind right now. But in 1973, there was an act uh, to protect the eggs of turtles and eagles. And they said, if you, if you damage one of these eggs, it's, it's years in prison. It's hundreds of thousands of dollars of fines. Okay? Does anyone else know what happened in 1973? The, uh, the, Ro the Roe versus Wade opinion came out through the Supreme Court that said, remember, the same year, it's, it's not okay to hurt the eggs of eagles and um, turtles, but it is okay to abort the child in the womb. The very same year, right? Romans chapter 1 says that man has turned from the creator and now worships the creation. And so we see that the people that are more worried about the pigs than they are the people, they've fallen into that mindset. One thing Ken Ham says about the Bible he says, we can never take um, our worldview, like we can never take the world's view and then try to superimpose it into the word. But our starting place needs to be the word of God. So we take this and we impose this on all the other views of the world. And so we can say all day long, yeah, we care about um, eagles. Listen, I'm not anti-eagle. I'm not anti-turtles. Matter of fact, I was in... Um, uh, Ormond Beach a few months ago, two months ago, we're walking the beach at night looking for this phenomenon where the turtles come up and lay eggs. And me and my friend Nathan walked for, honestly, probably about four miles. And on our way back, we saw this huge track. It literally looks like a Jeep has gone through the beach. And he said, That's a he took, took a turtle. You got to put your uh, cell phone on red light. You can't put it on a white light. Put your cell phone on red light and you go up there and there was literally this humongous turtle, like, I don't even know. It was about half the size of one of these tables. And it was up there laying eggs. That was a beautiful thing. It was awesome to witness. 
So I'm not, I'm not anti-turtles, I'm not anti-eagles, but Jesus himself is saying what he said in uh, Genesis chapter 1, that man was to take dominion over creation, that the image of God in man was more special and more valuable than any animal that existed on this earth. I don't care how much you love your dog or your cat, they're not more valuable than a human being because God's image, his ability to love, his ability to receive love, and listen, let me tell you, there's our cat, when he wants some food, man, he'll, he'll come show you some love. He'll start talking to you. He'll rub up against you. You know, walk past the door where we feed him, and he, he'll run over there, and, and he'll get up, and he'll act like he loves you, you know. He does that. Yeah, our kids do that. So, it, so in some ways, it feels like these animals have an ability to love, and I think they do. I think they have a special way to do that, but not in the same way a human has. And so the reason that people read this story and get offended that Jesus would, would kill these pigs is because sin has entered the world and human beings are now tainted and marred by the effects of sin. And so our minds look at these innocent pigs and we say, man, shouldn't there be some sort of special value over these people? It's just not the way God created things. God has a special plan and purpose for people over animals. Yes. Uh, I'm not going to say I remember where, but was there a uh, background uh, meaning to the fact that uh, after Jesus did that, that the townspeople were angry with him because they had exposed his livestock? Yeah, we're going to get we're going to get there. We're going to get there in a couple more verses. So if I don't answer it, then. You can ask then, okay? <clears throat> All right, so he asked a good question, but I think hopefully it'll get answered in a minute. So um, here we go, verse 34. Then the herdsmen, right, there was people who were, their job was to keep charge over these pigs. They saw what happened, and they fled, and they told it in the city and in the country. I mean, can you imagine witnessing this demoniac man who's possessed by a legion of demons, seeing his demons get cast in the pigs, those pigs going in the water and dying. This would have been an amazing thing to see. It would have been very strange. And so I think they fled to the town for a couple of reasons. One is because it was crazy. You're not going to believe what we just saw. The demoniac who's banished from the town is, is, is different. These pigs rushed in the water. But I also think it was, you know, these guys probably didn't own the pigs. They were the ones who had been given a job to take care of the pigs. And I mean, imagine how bad that might have made them look. Like on their watch, every single one of the pigs is now destroyed. So I think they went back fearful of what they saw in Jesus, fearful because of the, the, the whole experience, and then fearful that maybe the town was going to hold it against them. I researched that, Jim, how many pigs there were. I couldn't find a definitive answer. For some reason in my mind, I kept thinking 2,000. I thought Carl a couple years ago and Mark said 2,000. I couldn't find that number anywhere. There was no definitive answer that I could find. Maybe I didn't dig deep enough. But Legion would have been a multitude. It would have been a lot. So at least 100, if not a couple hundred. Um, you know, and you got to imagine, let's say it's a couple hundred pigs. How much is a pig worth today? 
A good pick. Like what's a lot? So 500. So this could have been, this could have been like anywhere from 10, 50 to $100,000 worth in today's market of what they lost. I mean, it would have been a huge, it would have been a huge deficit. But I couldn't find an exact number. So the people heard about it in verse 35 says, they went out to see what happened. And as they came to Jesus, here's what they saw in the man. Remember, the man had been gone a long time. The demons were gone. He was sitting at the feet of Jesus. He was clothed. And he was in his right mind. And they were afraid. It says they were afraid. They were afraid. So this man who went from the tormented man living outside the town, the man who they bound, the man they shackled, the man they couldn't restrain, the man who likely would cause fear in the city for what he said and what he did to men, women, and children, the man who was cutting himself, the man who was naked, the man who stunk, the man who was awkward to be around. Here he is, now in his right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus, and he was wearing clothes. I think it's interesting about this statement, sitting at the feet of Jesus. You know, church people got everything figured out, don't we? You sure? God saves the good people, right? Doesn't God save, isn't God's church filled with people who got it all figured out, Don? Like we're just a bunch of happy-go-lucky do-gooders. These are the people that sat at the feet of Jesus in the Bible. Which, by the way, sitting at the feet of Jesus was the position of a student and teacher. Jesus was the rabbi. Sitting at the feet would have been, I'm here to listen, to receive, and humble submission, obedience to you, Lord. Here's the people. The sinful woman, Mary. A woman who chose to learn rather than engage in hospitality. This demoniac man. And also the Samaritan who would have been enemies with the Jews. So it seems to be there's this people in the scripture that were most ready to receive were those that seemed to be the most far away. The ones who seemed to be tormented seemed to experience the most transformation. In this era, these would have been an un unthinkable group that would have been allowed to be part of the club, so to speak. Verse 36 says, And those who seen it told how the demon-possessed man had been healed. So what was their response to this transformation? Verse 37 says, Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked, asked them, asked him, Jesus. So after they saw it, they asked Jesus to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So we got into the boat and returned. Man, to experience the overwhelming grace of God and to see the transformational power of the demoniac man, I think it should have caused them to rejoice and say, Jesus, I don't know who you are, but we're bringing you back to our town. We got some other stuff for you to do. 
If you can do that, imagine some of the smaller things you can do. If you're the God of grace and mercy and love and it's displayed in that way, I cannot imagine these other things. Come, please come talk to my wife and children. Please come to our city. We've got some more amazing things for you to do. Instead, they said, no. We are seized by great fear and we need you to leave. Remember the the parable of the soil, beginning of Luke chapter 8? third soil what 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 was the things that stopped the third soil from being good soil cares of this world but let's let me hear it because i'm gonna tell you these things the reason we need to memorize these things is because these are the things that are going to keep us these are the things that are going to be our true test what are they okay riches pleasures of the flesh, and cares of this world. Okay? The disciples were tested in last week's passage when their, their, their own personal comfort was threatened. Instead of turning to God, they were turning to fear. And then when they saw Jesus accomplish the miraculous, they were still seized by fear. And so now they come to this place in the passage where the, Jesus is healing a demoniac man. And the people see him they should have worshipped him. They should have rightly dropped him down and worshipped at his feet like the demoniac man who had been transformed did. And instead they said, we don't know what you are, but we don't want any part of it. Please leave us. Please leave us. They recognized, in essence, that there was something about him that was special, but they didn't want any part of it. I'm just telling you guys, we worship a holy, perfect God. When the demoniac looked at Jesus and said, you are the holy, you are, excuse me, the most holy son of God, the demoniac nailed it, right? Can you improve on perfect? So what's the such thing as most perfect? Is it such a thing? It's hyperbole, right? The the demon knew this is the holy son of God, but he said, this is the most high. And I want to encourage us in our, in our society today, there is, there even creeps into the church um, a toleration um, of other religions, which we should be we should be nice people to other religions. We should love them. We should love them as the Bible says. We need to love them as ourselves. But these religions don't worship the one true God. And many of them are, are polytheistic, meaning there's many gods. In our neighborhood, they set up a thing last night to worship one of their gods who was departing back somewhere, and there's some great celebration. In some ways, Hindus, um, if you didn't know, they attach their, um, their religions, attach their, their cultural identity from, being in, from India. India used to be called Hindustan, which means the land of Hindus. And so it could be a cultural thing. Um, whatever the case is, it's, 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 not a, it's not the high God. Like, we know there's one God, in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and He's the Most High, and really there's, there's no other gods. But sometimes we tolerate the, the fact that other people are religious or that there's many paths. And we need to not tolerate that because at the end of the day, when we ask our, our Hindu friends which God came first, they have no answer. 
If there's a supreme God, then that's the, the one high God, and all these other gods are not actually on his level, and it's just illogical. But also, I can tell you, we can look at you know, our Hindu friends and say, oh, they got it mixed up, or Mormons, or you know, Jehovah Witness, or whatever, and, and we can claim that we've got a superiority, but, but we allow our own idols and our own comforts, riches, and pleasures to become our competing gods. And so I believe that's why Jesus has taken them on this test. Like Luke chapter 8 started with the parable of the soils, and then he's hammering them with the test. How will you respond when life gets hard? How will you respond when demoniacs get healed? And, and giving them pictures of people who would reject him. He's showing them. So these people want nothing to do with Jesus. But let me tell you how awesome Jesus is. Verse 38 and 39. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged, the demoniac man who sat at the feet of Jesus, like, Jesus, I want to go with you. Wherever you're going, I'm going with you. And Jesus says in verse 39, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. Now, how does that display God's great love for those people that just rejected him? Man, this guy's going. He's a witness. He's going to be a witness for Jesus. Isn't that awesome? Even though these people rejected him, God still sent them this missionary, this demoniac man who was healed. And in later passages, we'll see Jesus coming back to this area, and we'll see that many people's heart was tender towards Jesus. Those that rejected him's heart would become tender in later chapters. And uh, that's, just, that's just how awesome. When I was reading this, I was like, man, God's so awesome. He's so cool. He's so merciful that he, he actually sends and gives people second, third, fourth chances. And then it says, he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Isn't that beautiful? So here's where we bring it back home. Go ahead. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and that reminds me of us, right? When you see yourself in the story, where do you see yourself? Likely, maybe at times, you're the person who's scared to follow Jesus and asked him to leave, right? You say, that's not me. Well, you know what? Maybe it is. Here's the test. Scripture's full of hard things to do. Do you do, you do, do, you do all those things perfectly? Or are there days where you're like, man, not today. I'm, I, got, I got a lot going on, Jesus. I know you want me to share with my neighbor, but I don't know, man. That's fearful. Right? Maybe you're like the disciples who are just watching, like being tested. Do I believe God wants me to engage these kinds of people? Do you guys think God wants to engage, wants us to engage the people who are tormented and far from God? Do you think God wants you to engage that person that you spoke about, the person that you put in your mind when we first started this sermon? Do you think God wants you to? Yes or no? Anybody think no? Is anybody brave enough to admit that even though you believe that God wants you to, that practically you don't and therefore you actually don't believe it? Meaning, hey, I know God, I know God wants me to reach out to this person, but I, I won't or I don't. Therefore, I don't actually believe God wants me to do it. How do you do that with someone's possible? Because the person that came to mind is, even when, I won't say who it is, but even when his wife gets his Bible out, he tells her that book won't let her even read her Bible. 
is factually hostile toward the government. I'm glad you asked that question. I'm gonna I'm gonna answer it at the end of this sermon if I have time. How am I doing on time, by the way? Good. I'm gonna answer that. But the answer is yes, he wants us to. And he's described for us in scripture the way to do it. And before I go there, I just want to remind us that each one of us, whether you were filled with demons or not, the Bible says you were children of the devil. You were born in sin. You were born at enmity with God. And just like this demoniac man, he looked on you. He looked on your life. He saw you in your torment. He saw you in your nakedness. You had nothing to bring to him. You had wounds. You had sin. You had scum. You had muck. You had mire. And he said, I love you. And he cast all those things off of you. What the people tried to do was shackle him. This man could remove the physical shackles, but he couldn't remove the spiritual shackles. Jesus wants to remove your spiritual, your physical, anything that's hindering you from living the life he's called you to live. He's called us as his children to be free of those things. And then he's called us to be the ones going to those who are tormented. Here's what he says in Ephesians 6. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. So when you think of that person, Adele, first off, don't think of that person as the enemy. Because Paul's saying here in Ephesians 6, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but, we're ruling, we're, we're, but we are against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. Look, there's one who hates us. And he's got many people in bondage. And those people are not our enemies. They may be in bondage by the enemy, but they are not our enemies. But here's what Paul says to do. He says, put on the full armor of God. Everybody say full armor of God. So that when the day of evil comes, let's say it, let's do it together. That way we can, this can stick with us. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Ephesians 6.12 again reminds us that our conflict is not with anything physical, but it's spiritual. There is a spiritual battle that we are in. The battle for souls is spiritual. What the enemy wants you to do is to give up on that person. What the enemy wants you to do is say that person's too far gone. They're too tormented. They're in the cave. They've got the stones cutting themselves. They're enemies of God. They're too far gone. We need to be reminded, no one is too far from God. We are in a spiritual war. And so here's what he's given us. The armor, element of armor is truth. 614, the belt. This belt immediately sets the believer apart from the world since Satan is the father of lies. That guy's bound to captivity through lies. We have the truth. We trust in the truth. We share with him the truth. 
Deception is high on the list of things God considers to be an abomination. A lying tongue is one of the things he describes as detestable to him. We know Satan's the father of lies. We are therefore exhorted to put on truth for our own sanctification and deliverance as well as for the benefit of those we witness to. So we just share the truth. Verse 14, we're told to put on the breastplate of righteousness. A breastplate shields a warrior's vital organs from blows that would otherwise be fatal. This righteousness is not works of righteousness done by ourselves. Rather, this is the righteousness of Christ imputed by God and received by faith, which guards our hearts against the accusations and charges of Satan and secures our innermost being from his attacks. So we realize as we share the truth, no matter what this person says against us, it can't harm us. Our vital organs are protected. We're clothed in righteousness. God loves us. Just like he clothed that legion or the man who had the legion, he's clothed us in this righteousness. Verse 15 speaks of the preparation of the feet for spiritual conflict. In warfare, sometimes the enemy places dangerous obstacles in the path of advancing soldiers. The idea of preparation of the gospel of peace is that we need to advance into Satan's territory, aware that there will be traps. The message of grace is essential to winning souls to Christ, and we must be prepared with the gospel. We can't win them with our good works. We can't win them with our nicety. We can't win them with our cunning intellect. We're going to win people into the kingdom of God with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That everything, everything was created perfect in the beginning. Mankind screwed it all up. And the effects of sin have ravaged the history of the world, including our own lives. Our own lives are marred by sin. But Jesus Christ came to put an end to sin, an end to death, and an end to shame by dying on the cross. And for all those who uh, turn from their sins and believe in Christ, they can be forgiven and set free. I said it in 10 seconds. Like, that's what we need to be bringing to people. We can share all the other stuff, but if we don't share that, you understand? Like, this is the power of God's salvation. The shield of faith in verse 16 can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. When we bear the shield of faith, Satan can cast all aspirations, uh, excuse me, all doubt, dismay he wants, but they'll be ineffective. Because faith is a gift from God, and he's the author and perfecter of our faith. And therefore, our faith is like a shield, solid and substantial. And lastly, verse 17, the helmet of salvation protects our head, keeping this critical part of our body safe. If you, if you damage the head, you, do, you damage the body. So we could say that our ways of thinking needs uh, to be sanctified. The head is the seat of the mind, which it has laid hold of the sure hope of the eternal life. We have to believe in faith. So we have to guard ourselves against false doctrine. As we enter into Satan's territory, there will be false doctrine littered everywhere. There will be booby traps. Um, and we need, to, we, need to, we, under, we need to understand the truth so we can spot out the fake. The unsaved person has no hope of warding off the blows of false doctrine, but he, could, he doesn't have the helmet of salvation. That's why coming to church is so important. That's why reading your Bible daily is so important. That's why we're getting back to discipleship groups is so important because we need to be affirming what good doctrine is and what it's not. And then in verse 18, lastly, and this probably should be first in my opinion, we're told to pray in the Spirit. That is with the mind of Christ, with His heart and His priorities. In addition, in addition to wearing the full armor of God, we cannot neglect prayer. 
as it is the means by which we draw spiritual strength from God. I've said it before, I'll say it again. We can't just talk to people about God, but we need to talk to God about people. If you're, pray, if you're actively praying for that person, I guarantee you God will soften their heart. He'll give you opportunities. Whether you see it or not, he'll give you opportunities to share. He'll give you new strategies you've never been given. And then he'll do work when that person's at home, at night, asleep, away from work, or wherever that person is. The full armor of God is truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation. The word of God and prayer are the tools which God has given us through which we can be spiritually victorious. But we also need to be reminded, Satan is a defeated foe. Amen? So we go out and we trust in the faithful one. We do our best to obey him, knowing that he will accomplish his purposes on this earth. What an amazing savior. What an amazing journey. The Christian life, as you start to obey God, will be filled with moments like this that we see in these scriptures. It might not be as extravagant as, you know, a legion of demons getting cast into a herd of pigs thrown off a cliff into uh, drowning waters, but you will see spiritual victories in your own life and in the life of others. It's amazing that we get to be a part of it. Yes, Don? I think sometimes that, well, I don't think I know that all the time. God loves me, why does part of the record happen to me? I know a lot of people, everybody struggles at different levels of personal problems. Some way worse than others. Yeah. Time. Each time that you experience that, I look at it as like it, it's a blessing because and an opportunity for you to go closer to God. Yeah. Testing you. And it's, why does it want to test me? Because one day there'll be a day when this is going to be very, very way worse than it is. Yeah. And Amen. we're going to have to have that extra strength. Yeah. Faith. So it's uh, purpose and everything that God does to test you, which is trauma. It's all the stronger, but you're going to need that strength in the end. It's like football coach saying, you got 30 psyched up. Game, so it's the start. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And that's what he's doing with the disciples. He's taking them on a massive test because of those 11 and plus one, those 12 faithful men, here we are today. I was walking along with Moses the other night, and we could see it was, a dark, it was a dark night. It was clear skies. We could see the stars. And Moses was reminding me about Abraham and how God promised to Abraham that, that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And the reason why is because God had a plan. He used people, people like us, people like a man who was filled with demons who had cut marks all over him in a cave who was homeless and naked for years, God used men like that to help build his kingdom. How much more could he use people like us in this modern day age with technology, with cars, with cell phones, with so much opportunity? The question is, will we obey? And will we trust him? The results are up to him, Adele. We just obey. We just share the word and that's it. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for this text. Thank you that you saved a man who was filled with demons. Thank you that you saved him from his, his despair, his torment. You transformed him into an evangelist, helping tenderize the hearts of the Galileans and people that were around him uh, all through that region. 
And thank you, God, that you've saved the people in this room. And you saved us, Lord, for a purpose, that we would be evangelists, sharing your good word across this city, across this world, maybe even through social media. I think about some of our international friends in here who have uh, influence in other countries, God. Thank you you've given us a platform like WhatsApp and Facebook and other ways to reach people. I pray that we would utilize these opportunities for your glory. Help us find new creative strategies, Lord, to, to tell people about what you've done for us, just like this, this man who was rescued from the Legion. Um, God, empower our church, Lord. Thank you for your word. It's been inspired and preserved. I pray that you would inspire us through it. We love you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.